This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to uh, Transparency. We are joined today uh, with Alice Drager, the author of Galileo's Middle Finger, um, <clears throat> as well as, well, I'll let you introduce yourself more, more thoroughly, but um, uh, yeah, so we're just gonna talk about all things um, uh, you know, trans medicine and uh, resulting controversy. So welcome, uh, Alice. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I never know how to introduce myself. I, uh, so, I got into gender issues because I was interested when I was doing my PhD at Indiana University on issues of gender and science. And my dissertation director suggested I look at the history of what were then called hermaphrodites. And so I did my dissertation on that work. I looked at 300 medical case studies from the late 19th century, so the late 1800s in France and Britain. Uh, Ended up writing a book on that for Harvard University Press called Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex. And um, as part of that, I got talking with folks who were born uh, with the same conditions I was looking at historically. And so we got talking and several of them were members of the intersex patient rights movement. So that's how I got involved in intersex politics and gender politics. And I helped lead the intersex rights movement for something like a decade. Um, I was the founding board chair of the Intersex Society of North America when it incorporated and um, worked with that group for a long time. And then ended up doing a history of a controversy on transgender, which was about Michael Bailey's book. And I understand you've had Mike on the podcast, uh, the book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. I spent about a year doing that investigative history into that specific controversy and uh, published it. And then the trans activists I was writing about came after me. So that I kind of had a road to choose, which was hide or (laughs) try to understand what was happening to me. So I ended up doing a book about what happens to researchers who are typically left of center, but attacked by identity politics um, activists with whom I have great sympathy because I was coming out of something similar. So uh, that book is called Galileo's Middle Finger. And um, it it's not just about researchers being subject to cancel what we now call cancellation, but it's also about the work that I did with intersex rights and the problems with the way the intersex population was being treated and is being treated in the medical system. So some people read the book as a defense of researchers. It's kind of that, but it's also a defense of activism uh, that's responsibly done because it's very important to help people who exist in these minority populations survive the brutality, accidental brutality of the medical systems. But honestly, for the last eight years, I've been running a local newspaper, writing mystery novels, and uh, generally thinking about news. (laughs) So I've been less involved in uh, gender controversies over the last few years. I also, at some point, was one of the consultants to the International Olympic Committee about their policies on intersex and trans athletes. I've written for places like the New York Times and the Atlantic and folks like that about issues of gender. Um, But gender is not the main issue in my life. I'm happy to talk with you guys about gender, but it's not the main thing that my life is centered around these days. So forgive me if I'm out of date on any of the literature. 
No, that's 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 totally fine. I, I really appreciate uh, you being here. When we first launched this, um, well, Aaron had been doing the Gender Dysphoria Alliance for, for a number of months, and then I joined him in July, and we launched the, the Transparency Podcast. And at that same time, I was reading Galileo's Middle Finger and kind of your – and, well, at the time, Aaron was under uh, – basically his own uh, attack from uh, from trans activists. And they were really coming after him and his job at the same time I was uh, reading that book. And I had that, that same kind of thing. It's like, it's like uh, you know, is, is the truth worth worth what what's going to result and remarkably we've it kind of died out after that like we haven't been kind of the the um the receiver of, of much backlash uh since then but yeah it was kind of an inspiration to me like okay the whole um michael bailey trajectory of we're going to go down this road and um yeah it's kind of like the truth is more important than um uh yeah the quiet avoidance of it all uh, so yeah <laughs> But it can be pretty exhausting, especially because, as you guys know, there's these fine gradations between how people think about topics. And yet the public image is sort of that there are two sides and there are not mm -hmm. two sides by any means. Yeah, that that, that activism can attempt to completely silence um, the, the science of, of a medical field is alarming that, that that could ever happen, not just trans rights, but but that a lobby group can just completely sort of hijack a medical system and shut out the science and um, proceed purely on, on ideology. Um, is it yeah, what I'm what I'm really concerned about, too, is not just that, you know, that it's become very difficult to do science within this area, but that there are so many different types of trans narratives and the ways in which those get suppressed by accident. You know, the the intentions of trans activists are generally good in terms of they're trying to lower barriers to access to care and to help people feel empowered and feel positive and get over shame and have pride. The, the effect of it, as you know, has been much more severe in that it's very difficult for a lot of therapists working in the area um, and for other types of clinicians working in the area to do a sort of work that's attentive to the variation within the trans population or beyond the trans population, within the population of people who have um, variations in how they experience gender from the standard narrative. Yeah, which has huge implications for how we do assessment or even to do psycho any kind of psychotherapy, not not um, not trying to change the trans identity, but just trying to meet people where they're at. If, if clinicians aren't familiar with different kinds of gender dysphoria and different different paths and experiences, as, as you say, then, you know, if all they have is is the, the lobby's narrative. That's that's not a therapeutic narrative, right? It, it is a it's, a it's a political lobby narrative, but it, it's that's the only narrative that clinicians are really being taught these days. Uh, if they don't understand the nuances of what what trans really means, yeah, and I'm not I'm not sure there is a single thing that trans really means, right? So there there are a lot of nuances. I mean, I I certainly meet people who are bigendered, people who are gender non-binary, people who are changing genders, changing back, experiencing something that in the past would have been labeled differently. There, there's so much variation within that. And that's part of the problem is that that's getting suppressed. So, and, you know, I mean, the biggest concern I think is we, everybody who's reasonable and compassionate wants rates of suicidality to go down, wants rates of depression to go down, rates of unemployment to go down, right? We want this population to be well, 
the data is suggesting we're not getting there um, in a lot of ways. And so that's really troubling. And I think we have to examine the question, like, what can we do to actually be helpful? And of course, you know, some folks think, well, that's because the culture hasn't changed. And there's no question that that's part of the problem, right? Being Black in America, for example, is still an incredibly stressful thing. No matter how much progress we make, we know that it increases, like racism increases your blood pressure and has a measurable effect on your health if you're a, a black person. So the cultural environment certainly matters where people who are trans are considered and people who have gender variations are considered, but there's gotta be more than that going on. And I think part of what goes on is the sort of false hope of um, having something that maybe maybe isn't attainable in terms of you know a sort of simple resolution to one's feelings of doubt and feeling of dysphoria. So it's hard. I mean, these, these are hard issues for sure. Because it seems like the the activists, um, their their political push um, is actually what they think is going to be advantageous to to trans people is actually quite the opposite. It's like when you're when you're trying to blanket everything as as just this one narrative and not allowing exploration of what's going on, that leads to bad medical outcomes and, and incorrect assumptions of of what transitions is going to look like and who it's going to be useful for. Um, so inadvertently, it ends up harming the population it seeks to. Um, you know, endeavors to help is, is my perspective. But I think we don't want to lose track of the tremendous progress that has been made. So for example, I mean, the medical system used to have a really strong attitude that you, when you transitioned, it was kind of an all or nothing game, right? They wanted you to have everything in terms of every surgery, top and bottom, you know, and facial and everything else, everything in terms of hormonal interventions. And that was really because the medical system really had a very, um, conservative, very retrograde attitude towards sex and gender that everybody had to fit into one simple category or another. So I don't want to lose track of the fact that we've, we've made gains. So for example, people can get some surgeries and not all, right? The all that used to be expected, they can, they can find places to exist in between on some stuff. And that feels to me like tremendous progress, um, just in terms of giving people much more autonomy than they used to have within the medical system. Within the medical system, if you got into that system and you got past the gatekeepers, the pressure was pretty high to engage in a lot of interventions. And I think the good thing is we have more choice available now. You know, the, the bad part of that is that the barriers being lower, people get to those choices faster and they may not have had the, the waiting period. They may not have had the informed consent that they really need. And that's you know, part of the problem 20 years ago, when people asked me, what's the difference between intersex and transgender, when people didn't really understand that difference, what I would say to them was intersex and transgender people have the same problem, but the opposite effect of that problem that, and the problem in both cases is a medical system that insists that the medical system should be in charge of sex and gender. And they want only two types and those two types, everybody must adhere to. The problem is intersex people were being subject before they could consent to interventions that they had no choice about and being shoved into this two sex system. And trans people were having trouble getting into the two sex system at all in terms of they couldn't switch over. And so in both cases, we had a patriarchal medical system that was overly in charge. And what we're talking about today where the barriers have really been lowered and people may be getting into interventions that they later regret or that weren't the ones that solved their real issues that's an effect of positive change. And I, I don't want to ever lose track of that, that this is an unintended consequence of something that has been good in general, in terms of allowing people to have more bodily autonomy. And that I think has been a really good thing, that bodily autonomy. And also 
the culture has changed to accept a lot more variation in sex and gender in the last 20 years. And that's been a tremendous step forward. Um, and the medical system has in some ways been forced by the trans activist community to do that. And that's been a really good thing. The, the forcing of the medical system to accept variation in sex and gender has been a big positive. You know, I get asked a lot now by medical professionals what their intake form should look like in terms of sex and gender categories. I don't know the answer to that, but the fact that they're thinking about it to me is a really good thing. Because in the past, it was very frustrating for people who were intersex or trans or both to just do the intake forms, which were just totally insensitive to their, their histories as human beings. So we have made progress and the stuff we're talking about as being problems are the unintended consequences of good progress. Yeah, it seems like, well, the, see, I'm, I'm not sure that the net benefit, I mean, I, I, it's funny now, because I, I obviously am a, am a trans person and I, I, I actually coming at this from a different direction is I feel like the progress, while well-intentioned a lot of the times, I think, I think we're at a place now where it's probably done more harm um, than good when we look at the, um, you know, the, it's like a, um, I don't want to say the word fad, but a, um, there's a cultural, uh, there's cultural incentive for especially teenagers to, um, to disavow their cisgenderness and to seek medical interventions with basically no gatekeeping in order to, you know, uh, uh, validate this, this, um, this trans identification. It's very much a cultural, um, uh, phenomenon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Lisa Lippman's work at all with the mm -hmm. um, the rapid onset gender dysphoria. I when I when I spend a lot of time in the trans discourse and in these communities, um, it seems the overwhelming majority at this point are of that category and not the previous cohort of people who had um, you know severe discomfort with their gender all their lives. It seems more a lot of the case of of girls who are kind of inconveniencing themselves of performing masculinity and pretending to have dysphoria in order to get their trans treatment because trans is the goal not altering their gender or their sex is the goal it's completely 180 and i feel like i feel like that has a lot to do with the with the um again an unintended negative consequence of of what was um kind of uh, yeah, well-intentioned um, assistance to trans people. I feel like it's gone, it's gone to 180 and we're in, in um, uh, dangerous territory at this point. So let me ask you this. Why do you think it's dangerous? Because, because testosterone, the effects of testosterone are mostly irreversible. Mm -hmm. um, double mastectomies are obviously irreversible. Mm -hmm. And these, these are, these are treatments that are given to teenage girls. Um, and even, even people, you know, in their early twenties who are not, who are not really thinking about the long-term consequences. They're thinking my identity is trans, like, like how many years ago their identity would be pop, like punk or something like that. I know this sounds really dismissive, but that is kind of what we're seeing is, is it's like trans is what I want to be. And these are the things I need to do to get those things. And then after the fact, you know, we're, we're seeing now the detransitioners and the regret rate uh, of that because they weren't thinking, I need this treatment to, to, to fix, you know, that this, this, this innate discomfort I've had all my life. I need this to validate my, my identity with this subgroup. 
But the regret rate remains relatively low. And, you know, there are lots of things we can do as young people that we can regret later. I mean, just as a couple of examples, right? So tattoos can be extremely invasive and result even in medical problems, but certainly are very difficult to undo. And yet, I don't think a lot of us would say that people shouldn't be allowed to go ahead and make a choice that they may regret later in terms of tattooing. And another example I would give is that a lot of us um, in our late teens and early 20s have sex in ways that are not adequately protective or that did not adequately protect us from disease. And we end up with um, sexually transmitted diseases that, of course, we may later regret that we had. But does that mean like we should lock people down and say, you shouldn't have those choices. To my mind, what's happening is that we have a option available that we didn't used to have, or multiple options available that we didn't used to have. And people are choosing to avail themselves of that. And so our culture looks different than it used to look. And I guess to me, the question is, what exactly is the end goal? What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to save young people from sort of these things that, you know, we, as we get older say, oh, but you're going to regret that. You know, you're going to regret that tattoo. You're going to regret that piercing. You're going to regret getting pregnant. You're going to regret doing whatever it is. Is it, is it possible that it's just, this is a cultural change. And as long as we have something like adequate informed consent, and I'm not sure what that looks like in these circumstances, because it's very challenging to know whenever you, you get down to the individual level, what informed consent really does look like. But if we have that and people make choices and some of them are regretted, that's part of life. And that's part of a culture that is allowing people to have more choices. So, I, I mean, I don't disagree with you that there ought to be, you know, information available about regret rates and information, better information available, for example, about what happens if you take testosterone and it turns out that does not do what you had hoped and you can't undo it or a double mastectomy where you end up with negative, the negative effects that some people have from double mastectomy. But like, what, what really is the problem that we're trying to solve is my question. So, so what I'm trying to to do here is just to kind of talk openly about the experience of gender dysphoria and, and transition and what what all that entails because right now the narrative is very much just um every with, with the with the, the the constant push for affirmation it, it, we're basically we're not allowed to discuss the negative consequences we're not allowed to discuss any kind of um you know like in in, in trans forums and whatnot if you if you bring up um you know like um uh, you know, surgery complications or, or kind of like the negative results uh, that people have experienced and whatnot. Either you have to have a trigger warning or something like that, or, or you know, like don't let this discourage you from your transition, or you basically run the risk of being um, kicked out of the, um, those, those support groups. Um, so basically, the end result of that is, is just a silo of this is good, this is good, and any doubts you may have is, is a symptom of internalized transphobia. Right. This is, you know, this is cis heteronormativity telling you that you're wrong. So any, any kind of um, normal, natural um, uh, like uh, hesitations, concerns, they're all dismissed as, as a symptom of transphobia. Right. Um, and so... So because we're not allowed to talk about, um, you know, what, you know, what, what this exactly is and the fact that you cannot change sex. And that's not even really an issue anymore because most of these young people aren't even looking to change their sex. They're looking to change to trans. It's just like, it's such a mixed bag of different uh, 
intentions. And so, so like you were saying earlier, it's like now, now there's this, this multiplicity of gender expression and gender um, variation, while at the same time, from a higher level, the narrative is getting more and more um, homogenous. Like it's, it's um, like that, 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 you know, exactly what happened to, to Michael Bailey in 2003. You're not allowed to talk about what the, what the individual motivations are. You're just supposed to accept that some people are trans and we have to accept that and, and embrace that. Um, and then, but then, but yeah, so since that, since that kind of stamp down of, of talking about this has come up at the meantime, it's kind of exploded in variation underneath that, um, you know, especially with youth subcultures and whatnot. So again, well, at the same time, these are basically like genders are exploding like memes and a lot of people are, are looking for medical intervention for them while the outside world has to accept that this is just an innate natural variation, just like homosexuality is. And, and that's my concern. Yeah, I don't know why we would have to have a concept of innateness to accept that some people want to change their bodies. I mean, I don't think any of us would mm -hmm. say that you're born with an urge, for example, to get a tattoo or born with an urge to have sex with a particular person or born with an urge to become a teacher or a police officer or whatever it is. So I'm definitely troubled by anybody being subject to that um, narrative that requires that you testify that this has been in existence to you biologically since before you came into the world, um, because that's just oppressive for everybody, right? This idea that there's somehow a stable DNA of who we are and it's unchanging. And our whole task in life is to realize whatever that inborn identity is, is just sad at some level. Um, I mean, the beauty of the modern world is that we do have enormous amounts of freedom and power. Not all of us have the same amounts, but the world is much better than it was 3000 years ago for women, especially, I mean, I speak as a woman, the world's a lot better than it was. Um, and that's true for most of us, you know, for most, most of us would have been peasants and serfs and the world is a lot better in terms of our ability to live independently and have choices in our lives. So I, I do agree that that sort of innate narrative is troubling, but it's troubling for everybody. Right. And I, I just think, there is this tendency, I'm a historian primarily, right? And there's this tendency throughout history of older people going tisk tisk to the younger generations and saying, oh, you younger people, like you just have your silly fads and it's just, you know, something that you're obsessed with. But when you're older, you'll understand that this is not what it's all about. And they've always been wrong at some level, because at some level, every generation changes the world. And it's, I think it's okay that we have different options and there's going to be some people who pick the wrong thing. And I agree with you, they should not be picking the wrong thing because they are misled about the options. But even if you had total informed consent about double mastectomies being done for purposes of gender dysphoria or for just changing your body with regard to presentation, something other than breast cancer risk. So truly elective, double mastectomy, even if you had totally informed consent and people really did understand the, the negative potential implications, some people would still choose it and they would still have that negative effect, right? In the same way that with significant tattooing or significant piercing or anything like that, where we're changing the body, significant exercise, for example, where people do extreme bodybuilding, 
they may, you may get real informed consent, but there's always going to be a negative effect for some people. And I don't know why we can't say, okay, we're going to accept that. I, I mean, I agree with you that the problem is when, when any voice of concern is drummed out, those are dangerous environments. I agree. That's, that's dangerous when you have a situation where people are shouted down in terms of, um, hearing about the potential negative stuff. And, and this historically to me has been one of the interesting places where intersex and trans issues collide because one of the things that, I mean, even early on in the intersex rights movement, one of the things intersex people struggled with was trans people claiming that there were no negative effects from genital surgeries, right? And intersex people saying there were very negative effects from gender, from um, genital surgeries. And now intersex people had often had them as children and trans people were having them as adults. And there's a big difference when you choose a surgery versus you don't choose a surgery. But regardless of that, these two populations had very different accounts of the effect of surgeries on genitals, on genital sensation, on ability to orgasm, on lots of stuff. And I think that still has not sort of been worked out. So I, I am concerned certainly that people understand um, the loss, potential loss of sexual sensation um, and the potential loss of orgasm, the potential loss of um, pleasure and the potential for, for pain and for phantom um, pain as well. But that said, even if we tell people all of that, there may still be people who choose it anyway and end up with a negative effect. And I think at some point, level, we have to accept that if we're going to have bodily autonomy of the sort that I would like to see us have. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It's a, it, yeah, it's a, um, it's a different perspective, I think, than, um, uh, I guess, because I, I, well, I do have to kind of a, apply a historical lens to this a lot. I'm not a historian. I just studied a lot of hist history in, in uh, at college, but um, uh, I, I, I do, so I thought about this from the both both directions you talked about is I, I look at this from from a historical lens just kind of like the cultural trends that have led to this movement where we are you know with so many people seeking to alter their body to appear as the other sex i think that is a weird moment in history that we're in and i think we're going to be studying the cultural forces um uh the, the kind of socio-political uh um, forces that 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 got us here um uh, for, for for many years um <laughs> but I also like what you're saying. I thought I think about this a lot. Of the, I think it's the is it uh, John Adams? Um, not John Adams. That's Douglas Adams, the author of Hitchhiker's Guide, mm -hmm. where he's basically like um, talking about whatever generation. It's like anything that happens, you know, before you're 30 is the or before you're 20 is the greatest thing in the world. Everything that happens between the ages you're 20 and 30 is so brilliant. You're going to make a career out of it. And anything that happens after you're 30 is you know, indicative of the end of the world. I'm totally butchering the code, but that's the, that's kind of the essence of it. It's exactly what you're saying is, is things that happen, you know, what the younger generation are doing, anything that happens, you know, that you perceive after the age of 30 is like, oh no, this is going to be the demise of us all. You're all stupid and dangerous. So yeah, I did. I was like, when I, when I first started looking at what was going on with the younger, I was like, am I doing that? Am I just thinking, oh, just looking at this from like a, an old person perspective. Um, but I, yeah, I just don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think social media has really kind of changed the framework of 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 human behavior and human psychology i mean obviously we're, we've got the same hardware but i think i think social media is is kind of altering things in a way that that in a more drastic way than kind of cultural trends had been altered I, I think that's 
I think that's true, but you should know that social life has always had these incredibly powerful effects on people. So if we flash back 120 years ago, we would have had somebody basically taking your position, but the position they were taking were women are presenting as men nowadays, right? They're wearing pants, they're cutting their hair short. And they, I mean, this is especially true in the 1920s, but it had already started by the 1890s where women were choosing to dress as men or men, man-like in that they were starting to wear pants and starting to wear men's hats and starting to wear ties. And they were demanding the right to vote, the right to hold property, the right to education, the right to professions. They started actively taking on these masculine roles. And what we heard was kind of the same thing, which was, oh my God, like what's happening that these women hate themselves? right? Why don't they accept that they're female? Why don't they love that they're female? Why don't they accept the beautiful role that women have in the world? And, you know, it was not, God damn them, they don't deserve this. A lot of the rhetoric mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm, time was, mm-hmm. why don't they accept the beauty of womanhood? Why are they rejecting this? And what can we do to help them understand that being a woman is a wonderful thing? And so, you know, and and what were people pointing to? They were pointing to the danger of modern music. They were pointing to the danger of modern novels. And then when movies came into being, the danger of movies. So they were pointing to all of these cultural dangers that were causing women to take on masculine behaviors. And they had the same sort of horror and warnings. And, you know, obviously when you're making radical changes to your body, that's a, that's an extra step. I don't I don't want to discount how significant it is if you cut your breasts off and change your genitals or take testosterone. These are significant changes. But what I would warn is as a historian, we have heard this before and it, it, we've heard before this sort of dire warning of sort of why don't people get that they don't need to do this in order to be happy in the world and be satisfied in the world. So, you know, one, one of the great points of liberation has, was the sexual revolution of the 60s and made possible in large part by the pill. And it enabled women for the first time in history to go out in the world and, and choose to have sex without great fear, the great fear being pregnancy. And it, you know, my generation was the first generation sort of born into the pill generation. So I was born in 1966. And so I was born around the time of the pill. And that meant when I came of age, I had a sexual freedom that women before me simply didn't have. And as part of that sexual freedom, I ended up getting HPV, right? HPV is a pretty common disease and I got it and I got a bad effect of it. I ended up with cervical dysplasia and I ended up having to get my cervix operated on and all the rest of it. And that made me regret sex with a, whoever gave it to me, although I'm not sure who gave it to me and I'm not sure who else I gave it to, but my parents' generation was sort of like, see, right? Like this is the change to your body that you've taken on. You've taken on this risk and now you have to, and having HPV sucked. I mean, it really, and it still sucks to this day. I still worry that I'm going to get more cancers from it. I didn't get cancer. I had just the stage before cancer, but I worry that I'm going to get, you know, anal cancer or throat cancer or uterine cancer from this. Um, I am concerned that I may have passed it on to sexual partners unwittingly and ended up giving it to them. And yet, you know, the, the generation before mine, the conservative generation before mine basically had this attitude of like, you know, well, this is what we get for letting people do whatever they want with their bodies. And it's why we should protect people from not making foolish mistakes around their bodies. But 
I'm really glad I had that option and really glad I had sexual freedom. And yes, did I make mistakes that were serious and consequential? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that it was the wrong thing to do. It means I was one of those people in that category that got screwed by some of it, you know, and plenty of people in my generation got HIV and either died or are living with the consequences of having to be on drug regimes for a very long time. Does that mean that, you know, we should have listened to the older generation of like, protect your body. Don't do these things. You know, don't be, don't be queer. Don't be different. Don't be sexually liberated because that's not what it's about. I, I, I can't help as a historian feel like some of the rhetoric we've got going around the fear around the, the, bloom of trans and the bloom of gender non-binariness and the bloom of bigendering and all the rest of it is this sort of um, cyclical fear. And we have to recognize we're going to screw some stuff up and people are going to choose stuff that maybe they later regret or they don't regret, but they didn't work out well. And that's going to be part of the cost of freedom. I do. I do appreciate the the, yeah, the historical perspective uh, on all this. What, what uh, interesting what you were saying about the um, uh, uh, like in the in you know the turn of the century when women started wearing more masculine attire, behaving in what we've historically been understand as a more masculine way, looking for like political uh, you know a voice in politics and whatnot. <laughs> And people going, oh, they just hate being women. Why do they hate themselves? Why, why are they doing this? It does sound a lot like what we're hearing from um, certain quadrant of like the feminist portion of um, the opposition to transition. And, and they seem to be misunderstanding entirely what is motivating these young people. They're like, oh, why do they hate being a woman? You know, what do we do to make them cherish being a woman? And it's like, you're missing the point. This isn't about fleeing womanhood. This is about, this is about, destroying the patriarchy it's about queering the binary it's about it's like you got they're 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 doing the same thing they're, they think that they're working in, in the in the favor of feminism essentially of, of of destroying a patriarchal system they just have a different means of doing it than than the um than the previous uh previous generation views it right yeah no i agree and and you know I get that this is where they're finding the sense of empowerment. I, we, we all live in cultural moments where what's available to us in terms of the sense of being oppressed or being empowered depends in part on what's going on in the culture. So mm -hmm. I get that this is where a form of empowerment is being experienced. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, me, the great hope is, you know, not, not a return to a sort of feminist fantasy that I don't share. I mean, I'm a feminist, but I don't share that sort of fantasy of like, where you get rid of this moment. I think this moment's okay. Um, to me, like what I want is that people don't become overly obsessed with themselves, but try to work on a larger project. And I do think that's part of what a lot of young people I know who are in embracing trans identities are doing. They are, they are working on the cultural problem of oppression. I mean, they're doing so through their own bodies. Um, and in some ways I see that as reasonably brave, you know, <laughs> it takes a lot of guts to do what a lot of them are doing. Um, and, you know, to really say, I'm going to reject this idea of the body you're born with is the thing you must be and the culture just determines what that means. And I'm going to make some choices. So 
So, you know, does some stuff make me uncomfortable? Absolutely. Do I feel like people are walking into things with inadequate informed consent every freaking day in medicine in every freaking form? I mean, every time I go to the doctor, I feel like I'm struggling for informed consent in my own life. You know, like I've got a runner's toe right now. That's disgusting. I'm not going to take my sock off and show it to you, but I've been really <laughs> struggling with my podiatrist who I like, because I just feel like he's not really telling me what I feel like I need to know in making the decision of whether or not to have him take this nail off. He wants to put me on antibiotics for two weeks. I'm like, what's the literature that says I need to be on antibiotics for two weeks? Cause my gut hates antibiotics. I'm going to end up sick. I'm going to potentially end up with a side of one of those weird side effects that I don't want to have, you know, but like every day in medicine, I think people struggle for informed consent and it's very difficult. The people providing medicine, they don't really understand what informed consent would look like, you know, I'm married to a physician. I can tell you like there's very little more consent in medicine. He doesn't practice very much anymore, but I, you know, I've, it's, it sucks. And, and maybe sometimes I think this wacky thing, right. I think that just like tattoos, maybe gender and sex interventionist, um, activities shouldn't be in the medical realm. Maybe they should be out there like hairdressing and salons. And then maybe people would take seriously just how optional and risky these things are, but they probably don't understand just how risky a facial can be. So, right. Linda Evangelista, is that her name where she went in for this thing that's supposed to be simple and it sucks your fat out. And instead you end up with lumps, horrible lumps all over your body, you know, I just remember, you know, trans activism used to be so focused on convincing people that these interventions were medically necessary on the basis that gender dysphoria was fixed through through life and was distressing enough to warrant insurance companies or, I mean, in Canada, we have a socialized medical system to warrant, um, you know, this entering into our mainstream medical establishment and having one that, I mean, most insurance companies are covering it now, our most provinces here in Canada cover these interventions now. Having one that, it does concern me if, if enough people are um, opting into these treatments, like I just wonder what that magic number will be if people are opting into these treatments because of either you know, socially influenced or politically influenced identities as opposed to treating a condition, at what point will the whole thing just be scaled back or, or what will the eventual backlash be on people that really do need these interventions for comfort reasons, because the dysphoria is debilitating and that, that concerns me. I, I think that's a reasonable concern. And, um, you know, there's this wider question of what insurance should cover. And I mean, insurance covers, for example, typically uncovers breast reduction for women with very large breasts or for men who have gynecomastia. So um, female style breast growth, growth in a man, typically insurance will cover reduction in those cases because it does cause discomfort, physical and psychological discomfort. You know, the idea that sort of there's a group for whom this is true dysphoria versus a not true dysphoria is very tricky. There's always going to be that gray group in the middle, right? Where maybe maybe the person needs it now and legitimately needs it now because of serious dysphoria, but something could happen to them in five years where this becomes less urgent than other things in their lives. And so it becomes less psychologically pressing and 
harmful every day than it is now. I mean, I think that's just very difficult. People, people are not static beings, so it is, it is hard. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, I think it is really important that people take seriously that for some folks, dysphoria is a daily minute by minute crushing experience. And it, they really need help dealing with that. And um, the interventions really make a big difference. And some of the studies show us, you know, that for folks who are well screened, whatever we define well screened to be in those studies, uh, that the interventions make a big difference in their lives. So it's, it's tough to think about. But I, I do, I mean, I do think it's true that a lot of people don't understand how significant hormones can be in terms of the body and the mind, in terms of how they make you feel. You know, a lot of women who have used birth control pills do recognize that hormonal interventions are serious. I mean, they've experienced how different they feel on hormonal birth control, for example, and how it does really change their bodies and how they feel their bodies. But a lot of people don't understand that they are significant interventions or they're willing to risk it and take the risk. And at that level, I have to ask myself the question, should, at what age should they be allowed to do? You know, and that, that's also very difficult, right? Because, you know, we have age of consent for sexual sexuality, right? In my state, I think it's 16. You know, I know plenty of 40 year olds who should not be allowed to consent to sex. They are just not, <laughs> they're not, they're not mature. They're not sexually mature people. They're either narcissistic and abusive towards their sexual partners, or they're just too immature to be entering into relationships where they're having sex because they don't know what the hell they're doing. And yet we have a reasonable idea that at 16, you know, that's the point at which you're allowed to decide, even if you're going to decide poorly. I think this, this same question applies here. At what age do we say, you know, you're entitled to make a mistake that you may regret later. Um, we're going to try to give you informed consent, but we're just going to have to decide that you are empowered and empowered people will sometimes hurt themselves and empowered people will sometimes hurt other people. You know, young drivers are terrible. It's not merely that they're terrible because they're inexperienced. They're actually terrible drivers. Um, Young males in particular are terrible drivers because testosterone as far as we know. I mean, they're, they're dangerous drivers, but we let them drive at some point and we accept the risk associated with that to them and to us because we decide there has to be a point where we say, okay, you can drive. And we might want to rethink giving them the right to drive just as their hormones are peaking. <laughs> yeah. You know, at least there, there are, there are some interventions that actually work. So our state where I live in Michigan, for example, has a graduated license system. It's really good. And it's actually shown to help where basically you go up step-by-step step in what you're allowed to do. So you're first allowed to drive with your family, you know, with your parents and family, then you're allowed to have like one other person in the car. Then you're allowed to have two other people in the car. Then eventually you're allowed to drive with your crazy equally testosterone laden friends around town, but it's a graduated system and it actually has been shown to actually reduce um, crashes and death. And I think those sorts of things are things that, you know, we might want to think about with regard to these kinds of interventions. Like, would it be reasonable to say that there are certain ages where we say, okay, you, you can make this decision. And then later you can make this decision. And later you can make this decision. And try to let people make those decisions at a pace that makes sense for them. But it's hard. I, I do think also the lack of talking about how uncomfortable puberty is, is a really big problem, particularly in the United States, that we don't have enough conversation about 
the fact that as your body is changing rapidly, it can be a very uncomfortable experience, especially because you're suddenly going from being a child to being a sexualized being in the world. You're not just becoming sexual, you're being sexualized at a level mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. hopefully children are not. And then that can be a pretty bewildering experience. Um, and that's one of those things that, that seems to be uh, com- contributing to the drastic rise in certainly um, uh, natal females seeking transition is, you know, they go through puberty, suddenly they're getting this, this male attention that they don't want. And they think, be- because I don't want this, because I don't, I, I feel uncomfortable by this, this must mean I'm trans, this must mean I was supposed to be a boy. And I think that that kind of normal um, uh, discomfort around puberty and then, you know, exacerbated in the female uh, puberty with, with male attention when you're too young to uh, deal with it, it. It's now oftentimes being framed in this trans language we have that that is a symptom of dysphoria. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that's being kind of just caught in the, in the trans net, I feel like right now. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Aaron DeVore's work he published a book, a study called F to M. Um, and he looked at females to males years and years ago. Um, Aaron is a trans man himself. He his originally was Holly DeVore. And I believe he carried out the study when he was going by Holly, but that study is really interesting because it showed a very high rate among um, trans men of having suffered sexual abuse as children. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories behind that was that, in fact, it's kind of what you're describing, that these are um, natal females who had had very negative experiences with being subject to sexuality they did not wish to be subject to. And so they transition maybe in part as a form of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um if that is the case, then part of what's probably going on for folks today who are experiencing that narrative is not necessarily I'm trans as much as I want to change my body so that I'm subject to less mm-hmm. um, constant sexual harassment and potential sexual assault. And that I get. I mean, you know, it's it's really interesting to me because so I, I've hit menopause, which means my body now gives off very different signals to men than it used to. I look older. I move older and men are much less interested in me. I I'm hit upon much less in elevators and on streets and um, at conferences and that sort of thing. I didn't realize what a relief this was going to be to me. Like it's been this, I, I would have thought 10 years ago that this would be sad for me because I liked feeling like men think I'm sexy. Right. But my hormones also changed in conjunction with this. So no doubt part of what's going on is that I'm giving off different signals, which is I'm not interested. And it's it's been such a relief that I really have to, at some level, appreciate how difficult it must be for women who are really attractive, especially young women, how exhausting it must be to be in the world and how tiring it must be, especially if you feel like you're a person, not primarily a woman, right? You're, you're a person. Because I have, much of my life, I felt I'm just a person right? The gender is this thing that adheres to me in various cultural ways. And yes, I have a sexed body, but I'm primarily a person like other people. If that is the way you experience the world, I can imagine a desire to say, well, just, you know, fuck this. Like, I'm just going to desexualize myself at some level to stop having people engage me in that way. And as we have a cultural moment that empowers us with me too, and with speaking back against serial sexual abusers, I could see, you know, feeling like, yeah, I'm just going to change my body in a way to desexualize myself at some level and just take that off the table and let people deal with me as a human being. That's, I get that. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, does that end up getting mapped onto the trans narrative? Well, yeah, but that's partly because of the old two sex system that seems to insist that, you know, you're either this or this, or you're in between, but we're definitely going to categorize you. Wouldn't it be nice if you could do stuff and not be required to have these categories at all and just um, take some of that pressure off? That would be great. I think if we could do that. Oh, go on, Aaron. I'm just wondering, just that, following on that idea, um, knowing of your work in advocacy for intersex um, intersex rights, I mean, when you were doing that advocacy work, were you seeing much overlap um, with intersex and trans at that time? Because now there seems to be quite a bit of overlap and intersex people are saying, well, let's I mean, I, I have um, an intersex condition myself, but I, I wasn't diagnosed until late in life. Um, so I was never really a part of the intersex medical system and advocacy, but mm-hmm. I have met over the years, a couple of other intersex trans men, um, but there seems to be at least culturally quite a bit of overlap between those two communities. Um, so I'm just curious if you were seeing much of that back when, when you were doing the advocacy work. Yeah, you know, Early on, so I started in that work in the mid to late 1990s, and um, there were definitely overlaps in part because there were a lot of politically aware intersex people who were also trans because they had rejected the gender assignments given to them at birth and had become not just intersex people, but had also become trans people by virtue of having rejected um so people like uh, Max Beck, for example, who was born XY and with ambiguous genitalia and was made into a girl, Judy, and later realized what had happened to her and decided to become Max. So Max was both a trans person and an intersex person. Um, there was definitely overlap. Part of what happened early in the intersex movement, of course, was that you had a, a um, select few who were politically conscious and the people who were politically conscious were typically coming out of the LGBT movement. So there were people who were not just intersex, but they were LGBT or T, you know, they were one of those things also. And that's how they got to their political consciousness around intersex. That changed over time as intersex became better known and people were able to have a political consciousness, even if they were straight and at some level cisgender and intersex. So that changed over time. So that, for example, the women with AIS with androgen sensitivity syndrome had a political consciousness about intersex, but they did not have a trans experience or an LGBT experience. So it really depended, but we also definitely found people who were um, trans, who felt gender dysphoric or had transitioned, who thought of themselves as intersex because nothing else made sense in terms of they felt this so strongly that they felt there must be something intersex about them or the feeling itself was was at some level intersex. I mean, as, as some of them said to me, and this made sense to me, right? If you believe the, the mind is the brain, and the mind is telling you the right gender to live in is this one, then at some level, the mind doesn't fit the standard of the male or the female brain, right? Something else has happened in that brain. And that makes sense to me. And even if we can't point to what that is in that brain, right? That's not the standard male experience is to want to become a woman. And it's not the standard female experience to want to become a man. Therefore, there's something different about that brain, which at some level, some of them said, well, therefore that is intersex. And, and, you know, as a historian, I have to say, I don't, I can't tell you what the definition of intersex is. I can tell you at a given time in history in a given place what the definition is. So the definition of intersex is morphing. And I know that there are a lot of intersex activists who are uncomfortable with that because they don't want it to encompass what we think of as the trans experience. I'm agnostic on that question because my feeling is I'm not in charge of language. And if we change the definition of intersex to encompass that experience, 
that at some level makes sense to me. It makes sense to me if we choose not to do that. Like I'm not in charge of the culture in terms of how we define these things. So there was definitely blending and there still is places where things blend. Um, I think what we don't want to lose track of is right. That the difference is that intersex people frequently are lied to about their medical history and they're subject to interventions they did not choose. That is the significant part, unfortunately, still of the intersex experience. Unfortunately, that's still very common in the intersex experience, but I'm hoping that's changing. The other thing I think is worth realizing, and a lot of people don't understand this, the same teams that are treating kids born with intersex conditions are the teams treating kids who are identified as having gender issues. It's exactly the same teams at these hospitals, if you're talking about children's hospitals. So it's, it's exactly the same teams, literally the same teams. And that is significant because I think that helps us understand why there is this push in some of the children's hospitals to send kids down the route of trans if they're experiencing something that looks like gender dysphoria, because these are historically children's hospitals that have been into the idea that everybody needs to be made into one sex or the other very clearly very early. Right. So they are used to the idea that very early on you intervene and you intervene with surgeries and you intervene with hormones and you intervene with psychological support and you do that, you shift over and they believe you can shift over, right? That gender is performative at some level in the conception of these children's hospitals. And therefore it's not surprising to me that what we have on the trans side is something that says, yep, let's intervene. Let's do Lupron. Let's do, you know, change the puberty change the body because these are, these are teams at children's hospitals that historically have done that all the time on intersex kids. So you're basically saying it's kind of this, this, this historic, this old fashioned model um, that's, that's now kind of being applied or, or kind of framed as like a progressive thing. Like, you know, that tra- transitioning children is sort of framed as, as, as a progressive um, platform, but you're saying it's what it went, in, in, the, in the actual hospitals where it's taking place, it might be kind of motivated by a more uh, old fashioned notion of you were either one or the other when we need to make you conform to one or the other. Yeah, I don't think that the people themselves doing these interventions fit simply into a conservative or a progressive standpoint. So a lot of the pediatric endocrinologists who are younger and the pediatric urologists who are younger, I think are politically progressive, are very accepting of LGBT people, are really accepting of a spectrum of sex and gender. That said, yes, historically speaking, the clinical establishment did not come out of a happy progressive place. (laughs) Historically speaking, it came out of a patriarchy that was very interested in making sure everybody had genitals that would fit a heteronormative system. It used to be that the majority of of intersex people I interacted with identified as either male or female. Very clearly, you know, I, and we're we're very firm about that um, because I think they were used to a lot of people calling them a third sex. And they were very firm, no, I'm not a third sex. I am a man or I'm a woman that has this condition. And that's one of the changes I've seen over the years as, as queer theory has, has become more appealing to more and more intersex people is that embracing of I'm a third sex or I, sort of identifying as intersex um, or a third sex or um, non-binary more and more and more. Yeah, I think definitely we see a lot more embracing of that. I mean, one of the really interesting moments for me, it started about 10 years ago, was when the women with AIS who, you know, are born looking female, undergo a female puberty, except that they don't menstruate, have brains that are actually more feminine than the typical female because they're not responsive to androgens, 
when they started talking about themselves as intersex, that was an interesting moment because historically speaking, of course, they're not, they're not exactly intersex. I mean, there's, they're, they're not between in some levels in, on some measures, they're more female than the typical female, like on, in terms of androgens, for example, they're more female than the typical female in the sense that they don't respond to androgens. So that was an interesting moment when that shifted. And then also among CH women, that battle, which is still not totally played out, um, where more intersex, more, more women with CIH were willing to take on the mantle of being intersex, which was not the message among, for example, the CARES Foundation, the most, the largest, and I would say fairly conservative CIH support group, which very much gives the message, you know, these are our precious little girls and we're never to talk about intersex because intersex is a dirty political word. So, yeah, it's challenging. I mean, intersex has many different meanings. Intersex has a biological concept, but it's also very, it has a political concept. And those two things are not at all the same. So a child is not born with a political identity. I mean, a child is given a political identity when it's born, but children are not born with political identities. We're given them quickly, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, the moment I was baptized, I was given a political identity. Real quick, one more question, and then we'll, we'll let you let you go. Um, uh, I was curious in regards to the, the CAH and, and girls developing dysphoria. Um, I, I am curious about if you noticed anything in by way of that. Just when I was reading in your book about CAH and the interventions thereof, and just the, the how these girls uninter you know, uninterfered with their lives, obviously much more likely to be lesbian, take on a much more masculine um, type type role in society or, or having much more masculine interests. <clears throat> and I was wondering, you know, now would we have more, more, um, uh, more visibility to the concept of trans and the concept of gender dysphoria, are those girls quite likely to be in, in that cohort or like, or how many <clears throat> would you say, I'm not, not that you've got a specific number, but you know, I mean, I feel like there's going to be a high rate of gender dysphoric prepubescent girls and CAH. That could be, but it may have nothing to do with the CAH, right? So it okay. might have everything to do with the cultural milieu. So our, our cultures throw up available, sounds like they vomit them, and it feels like that actually, that our cultures give us an array of um, identity possibilities. And within those constraints, we end up inhabiting those identities. Um, the identities are different now and the ability to shift between them is easier than it's ever been before. So would we expect that to be true of an intersex population? Absolutely the same as it's true of a non-intersex population. I think we can expect more variation within those. Yeah, for sure. But I haven't looked at the most recent data. I do think that the CAH population, like the Klinefelter's population, like the AAS population, gives us reason to believe that hormones matter to sexual orientation and gender identity, but there's never a perfect, perfect correlation. And our gender identities and our sexualities have are so complicated, as is our sex development. It's all very, very complicated. And I don't think a lot of us know how we got to where we are. We can tell stories about how we got to where we are, but a lot of us, we don't know. You know, I still don't really understand why I'm straight. Like, <laughs> you know, I know I am. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny when the 2D40, I don't know, you guys know about the 2D40 finger ratio. I can't remember how that goes, but I have heard said, it. But a friend of mine. Yeah, it has, to, it has to do with a ratio of your second digit and fourth digit. And I think it's your left hand, if I remember correctly. And it has to do with how androgenized you were in the womb. And they were trying to show that this was in fact a, a marker of how high an androgen level you were subject to at the, in the womb. And I was out to lunch with my friend who was studying this, Mark Breedlove, a um, 
developmental biologist at Michigan State University. And uh, yeah, I held up my hand to him and my hand shows that I'm highly androgenized. And he started laughing. He goes, well, you are pretty aggressive. <laughs> we just, just, we both had a really good laugh. Cause like, you know, I'm pretty female typical. I'm straight, but I am known as being very aggressive and my fingers are androgenized. So we can always tell these stories about where we come from. I'm not sure any of us know. I mean, I think the thing we're all trying to do in our lives is to be well and feel good. And I hopefully also try to be good to other people. That's the one that we have to work on. But um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm glad to read the Tao Te Ching. I read the Stephen Mitchell translation. And, you know, it reminds me all the time that not being is very important that we spend too much time on being and not enough time on not being. So I've enjoyed being with you both. Thank, Thank you, you so very much, much for you having have, me. You have me looking at my hands now, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to go look at that work. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Alice. This has been Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take Bye-bye. care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.